Uma-gyanati-mirandasya gyananjana-salakaya Chaksurumilitam yenatasmai shi gurve namaha Vande shi krishna chaitanya Nityananda sohodito Gododai pushpavanto chito sanglotamo nudo He krishna karuna sindhu Dina Bandhu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute Tapta Kanchan Gurangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Prashabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Sri Gauri Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai Shimon Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Binda ki jai, Gaur Pramanande Haribu. So, good afternoon. Discussing from Bhagavad Gita, Chapter 6, describing Astanga Yoga. And Krishna is in the midst of describing the symptoms and characteristics of someone who's situated in yoga. Someone who has attained Paramatma, we talked to some length. This morning about the Paramatma conception of the yogi and and the devotees' perspective on that as well. So jnana bhagyana triptatma kutosto vijitendriya yukti yuchite yogi sama lostrashma kanchana. One who is self-satisfied by dint of scriptural knowledge and realization and is steadfast and sense-controlled sees a piece of earth, a stone, and gold equally. One so fixed is said to be a yogi. The superlative yogi is one who always looks at a close friend, an associate, and an enemy, and looks equally at all of them, and who is thus equal in his dealings with everyone, be they saints or sinners. The yogi should always concentrate his mind on the self, remaining alone in a secluded place, with mind and body controlled, free from desire, and devoid of possessions. He should establish a firm seat for himself in a clean place. It should be neither too high nor too low, and should be covered with kusha grass, a deer skin, and a cloth. Making his mind one-pointed and controlling all activities of his senses, he should sit on that seat and engage in yoga for the safe sake of self-purification. Holding his body, neck, erect, he should remain motionless and steady, concentrating his vision on the tip of his nose without letting it stray here and there. With his mind quieted, fearless, over observing a vow of chastity, controlling his mind and fixing his thoughts on me, he should sit concentrated in devotion, holding me as the highest object. Thus, always disciplining himself, the yogi whose mind is controlled attains a supreme peace, situated in me, beyond the cessation of material existence. So, continue a little bit more. Arjun, yoga is not attained by eating too much or eating too little nor for those habituated to sleeping too much or sleeping too little. 
The practice of yoga destroys the miseries of a person who is disciplined in his eating and relaxation, who performs his duties diligently and who is balanced in his sleeping and waking. When a yogi abides in self alone with mind controlled and free from longing in relation to all material desires, at that time he is said to have attained yoga. A yogi whose mind is controlled and situated in yoga is like the unflickering lamp in a windless place. Then, yoga is the name given to that state of dissolution of all sorrow arising from material contact in which the adept's mind comes to a halt, being restrained by his disciplined practice in which he beholds the self by the self and is thus self-satisfied, in which he comes to know the boundless joy that is beyond the senses but apprehended by the pure intelligence of the soul, in which, once established, he never wavers from the truth, upon gaining which he thinks there is nothing greater to be attained, and situated in which he is not perturbed even by the face of great difficulty. To attain this, a person should engage himself in yoga practice with determination, his mind always confident of success. Without exception, he should abandon all craving born of desires and control the senses on all sides by the mind. Gradually, step by step, he should control, uh, step by step, he should become still with intelligence carried by conviction. His mind established in self-realization, he should cease all mental activity. From wherever and whenever, whatever the mind, fickle mind wanders, the yogi should draw it back under the control of the self. The yogi whose mind is truly composed and who has subdued his passion and is free from evil attains ultimate happiness and self-realization in this way through constant practice. The yogi, free from any trace of evil, easily reaches Brahman, attaining boundless happiness. So here, briefly, Krishna has taken us through the, some of the regulations and disciplines uh, for practice of yoga and described something about the nature of yogic attainment. And um, his description of various uh, external or physical Concerns, bodily concerns, place and uh, nature of the seat and uh, um, habits with regard to eating and sleeping and so on and so forth. All of these are now more sophisticated, if you will, or subtle forms of action really in the context of sitting all for the purpose of stilling and uh, controlling, focusing retiring almost, if you will, arresting the mind. Previously, of course, he talked about action in terms of prescribed duties and so forth and selflessness that should be um, the motivating factor behind them and how this is purifying and brings you to the point of being able to sit, so to speak, so how to move in such a way that you can sit. They're connected. And upon sitting, then there are certain conditions that if in place, this will improve or enhance one's capacity to facilitate the uh, central kind of uh, focus of yoga to arrest the, the uh, wayward and windy movements of the, of the mind. He 
talks here about a certain degree of equanimity, which is worth discussing, equal vision, degrees of it even, seeing material things matter equally, uh, whether it be a stone or, or, or a piece of gold. And then on the higher level, animate things. It's harder to... It's easier to see a, uh, two inanimate things equally than it is to see animate things equally, especially if one of them is close to you, a friend, and an enemy, for example, to see them equally. It's more difficult, so there's a, there's a gradation there that's being discussed in terms of the kind of equanimity or samadarshana, equal vision, that the uh, yogi has. Krishna will describe this once more here towards the end. In, a, in another sense, but this equal vision is very, um, I want to say, characteristic of, of yoga and jnana. And although it's in place as well within bhakti, the devotee at the same time is characterized by some type of discrimination and some type of bias, of course. Bhakti is fueled by a particular bias for Ram or for Krishna or for Narayan, for example, for a particular practice within the context of bhakti, for hearing, some for chanting, some for archana and so on and so forth. It's, uh, it's, it's variegated in comparison to the, uh, to the realization sought after by the yogi and by the jnani com- comparatively. And so this equal vision, as I say, although it's it's not absent in a sense from the devotee, his devotee is more characterized by by um, an apparent inequality in his vision. That's really not so, because he sees everyone equally in relation to uh, to Bhagwan. Here, Bhagwan's not really in the picture. And Bhagwan thinks differently about different types of people, and therefore he reciprocates with them differently. As he says, As they approach me, I reward them accordingly. With regard to Samadarshina, once I remember Prabhupada was asked by, by a Hindu gentleman visiting in Mayapur, he was pressed by this gentleman in Darshan, Prabhupada was giving in Darshan speaking to people, and this one Indian gentleman was there and he, he asked Prabhupada, are you Samadarshina? Which means, do you see equally? And Prabhupada was kind of resisting the question. He was pushing it. He said, I want to know. Prabhupada would give an answer kind of round but I want to know, are you Samadarshina? This kind of aggressive. <laughs> and Prabhupada was tolerating and finally he said, I may be, I may not be, but uh, I follow my Guru Maharaj, whatever he's asked me to do. That's, that's my qualification. You're, in other words, you're asking my qualification. That's what you wanted. I don't even necessarily consider that Samadarshina is the qualification. You could be a perfect Samadarshina yogi and not be an emissary of bhakti. <laughs> so he said, my qualification is I'm a servant. That's my qualification. And I act accordingly. And that's bhakti. When it, it doesn't sound like much compared to Samadarshina. He sees equally everything, everyone. It sounds like some very extraordinary attainment. But if material, spiritual life involves retiring the material ego, 
then if you think about that, and as we've said, the material ego, if it was to be characterized in a word, it would be exploiter, enjoyer, inappropriate enjoyment at the cost, I mean, say, of, of others, exploitation. It's very unbecoming. And um, the converse of that, the direct opposite of that, contrast to that is the serving ego, to be a servant. So if we were to take that enjoying spirit out of ourselves, then it's one thing to try to suppress it and push it aside and not exploit and so forth. But obviously the comprehensive way is to start to serve, to act. They say in football that the best uh, defense is a good offense. Something like that, I think, isn't it? Or the best offense. Anyway, anyway, I'll say it. the best. So to be, it's, bhakti is kind of on the offensive. <laughs> it's offensive to the enjoying ego. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, aggressively going after that and converting it to a serving ego. It's like if you take the enjoying ego and dig a hole and put it inside, and then build a temple on top of it as well. Something like that. It can't come out. There's a temple on top and there's activities going on there that are just the antithesis of it. We'll have no place, even if it was somehow to surface. It would not be at home. So leaving no room for that open season for hunting it down. And uh, and um, it's uh, uh, a species in, in danger of extinction that we're not concerned about. Bhakti is... Uh, Declared an open hunting season on the, on the ego to kill the self and and replace it then with the, with the serving sense of identity attachment to matter fosters a certain type of identity and attachment to Krishna as we know that also is the formation and the basis of the formation of our identity for serving him in this leela so. He said, I may be, I may not be. Samadarshina sounds like real mystical and overtly, categorically different kind of attainment. Material life is full of determinations like friends and enemy, and I like this, and I don't like that, and so on and so forth. Now, the Bhakti devotee has this, but his real position is that he's a servant. And that's more difficult. It doesn't sound like it. Oh, but I'm, my qualification is I'm a servant of my guru. I simply follow his order, that's all. But this is so, as I say, the antithesis of the material ego. It's almost hard to grasp. Bhakti is just so... Um, it's very subtle, in other words. Obviously, there's a stark difference between an enjoyer and, and a servant. But there are some similarities also compared to a person who sits still and does nothing and, and you wonder about him. What's he seeing? What's he not seeing? What's going on in there? The boat is a little more open and, and down to earth and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, accessible than, than, the, than the yogi. And therefore, Vaishnava very difficult to, to understand. But it's very difficult to get a serving ego. It's much easier to become a samadarshina. So Prabhupada was giving higher qualifications to say one can be a perfect samadarshina yogi and 
have no affinity for Krishna bhakti and therefore not be capable or qualified to be an emissary or agent of such. Again, bhakti is characterized more by bias than not. We have the example of the Kumaras going to going to Vaikuntha. Within this world, within the material environment, they're said to be a Vaikuntha planet. They went there. Jain Vijay, the gatekeepers, fell from there, it said. So they can't even be said to have fallen from the actual Vaikuntha proper. <laughs> but uh, they went to the gates, and they were they were Samadarshinas. And they, they, and they were dressed naked like children, like little little naked boys can go anywhere. Nobody say anything. So they could go anywhere. They were just like little toddlers. And so the implication is that this, this is the nature of this type of realization. They don't see friends, enemies, borders, boundaries, uh, border lines and so forth. And then they came to Vaikuntha, and they weren't allowed in. And so they thought, what is this? What kind of place is this? These people are have material consciousness. They're not letting us in. And so they cursed the gatekeepers. And you know the story. It's there in Bhagavatam. Long story. Starts maybe in the third canto. Ends in the seventh canto. And when the gatekeepers were cursed, Narayan came out and said, Oh, I've offended you. And because these Kumars are very smart, they could understand when the Lord's statement that he had identified himself with all the people of Vaikuntha. And so whatever the gatekeepers had done, Ryan considered that he had done it. So the Kumars could understand these people, these gatekeepers, are very dear to Narayan. He sees them in a dynamic sense as one with him. Like I can say, Brigu and I are one. We're on the same page, something like that. But it doesn't mean there isn't a Brigupad and there isn't a Swami, luckily. <laughs> <laughs> For all of you, and Brigu and I too. So, uh, it's good to be an individual. So, in a dynamic sense, sense of love. And um, so the Kumaras, then they started to realize, oh, we made an offense. By offending the devotees, we've offended Narayan. This is an extraordinary place and so forth. So anyway, the point is it's fueled by a certain type of a bias, an affinity for Narayan. And Narayan is, is subject to this type of affinity and bias also. Indeed, that happens to be his most wonderful quality, Bhakatvatshal, that he's prone to his devotees. This is, again, the love psychology. If you love someone and someone else doesn't like that person, then you don't like that person. So Narayan's like that. And within Vaikuntha, then, there are, there are devotees of Ram and Narasimha and so forth and so on. And they, so they have their particulars. There's the story of the uh, Hanuman being called by Krishna and Dwarka. He sent his bird carrier, Garuda, to tell Hanuman to come. So Garuda arrived and said, Hanuman, Krishna wants you, and Dwarka, please come. He said, okay, well, tell him I'll be there in a minute. And then he's waiting for him. He said, hop on my back, I'll take you right there. No, no, go ahead, man. I'll get there in a minute. So he went back bewildered because he was told by Krishna, a great devotee, Hanuman is there, I want to go, go tell him to come, I want to see him. 
And he went back and he, he told Krishna, well, I want to see Anna, what kind of a devotee is he? He said he'd come later on. And, you know, offered to fly him there immediately. He said, no, I'll get there. And so then Krishna told Gaurav, well, go back and tell him Ram wants to see him. So then he flew back and said, Ram's looking for you. He said, all right. And then uh, I'll go. He said, well, you want to hop on? I'll take you there. He said, no, no. So again, Gurudev was flying back, kind of bewildered. And as he was flying back, Hanuman was coming the other way, saying, Ram, Ram, jumping. So he had jumped all the way there, the implications before Garuda could even fly there, and he was already on his way back. <laughs> He'd gone to Dwarka, and Krishna had showed himself as Ram, and uh, rendered his service, and so forth. So, so bhakti is fueled by a kind of uh, a bias. It is a bias. It's a transcendental bias, so included within it is a kind of equality of vision. And one of the ways in which that is plays itself out as a devotee like, for example, especially the devotees of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they don't see anyone who's fit or unfit for bhakti. Mahaprabhu didn't qualify anyone who's fit or unfit. He distributed it widely. And people were able, of course, to take advantage to different extents. Sometimes we may seem to discriminate, but it's only because we know people cannot take advantage to a certain extent um, in a certain circumstance. For example, we might not let the dog come in to hear the class because we know we won't be able to take advantage, but we'll give the dog prasad. So there's a kind of dynamic equanimity, if you will, and a really fuller expression of it in bhakti than in jnana. In jnana, it's kind of a, and in yoga, this kind of yoga, it's kind of a static compared to a dynamic sense of equanimity, equal vision, equal vision of the Bhagavata, of the devotees described in Bhagavatam, Bhagavad, what is it, from the 11th canto, it says, describing Uttam Bhagavat, vision and realization. You read there, you see, it's describing an equanimity, an equality with what he's seeing. What is he seeing? He's seeing uh, everything related to Krishna. He's seeing Krishna and everything, everything in Krishna, everything, nothing disconnected from Krishna. And so he acts uh, accordingly. He doesn't have to go and offer the prasad on the altar. He sees whatever he brings me, that's Krishna's, Krishna's bringing me something to eat. <laughs> that's a higher form of prasad. He has that kind of vision. A dynamic kind of equanimity. This is, sounds good here. It's, uh, it's something worth attaining in a sense, but what bhakti affords us in this regard is a more dynamic idea. So anyway, equanimities of mind here, one-pointedness of mind is what he's driving at and coming to. And um, he adjusts his situation accordingly to bring about that effect, the terms as has been discussed here. His seat, not too high, not too low. And at times gone by, they had the deer skin and the kusa grass and the cloth and... And um, the idea of it's too high, it might fall off. It's too low, you might be bitten by a snake in a trance. Um, so these are kind of local, uh, provincial considerations. More than they are universal. Universal, the application is more that you should have a quiet place, a solitary place, and have your own seat. It speaks of your own seat, because if it's somebody else's seat, the mind would be disturbed by thinking, 
at somebody else's seat, they might come and want it. So you have to have so there's some scope for possessions in the context of being coming possessionless. Have your own seats and you keep it in the same place. My brother uh, came to visit me recently and um, came up in my bedroom and I had the seat there, a little seat, and, and I thought, uh, for sitting. He said, oh, that must be your place for sitting. <laughs> He's kind of a yogi. So, you know, that's my place for sitting there. So, we should have our own seat and our solitary place. And the solitary place means... For a couple of things, it means out of the way of, of of the world and the busyness and so forth, so there won't be any distractions. That's also why the devotees get up before the sun rises, because once the sun comes up, there's so many things to do. But before the sun rises, and the world's still asleep, and devotees awake to the sleeping condition of the jiva and cultivating real life. So, anyway, a solitary place, a quiet place, and also for the reason that bhajan, when, which is kind of the meditation stage, if you will, of, of yoga when we, within bhakti, or here it's meditation, there we call it bhajan or smarnam. It's not something um, to advertise. This is, a st- as we're hearing in here over the, these classes, this is a stage of development. He's reached a point where he or she can sit, actually. So there's, it's, a, it's an elevated stage, a stage of purification. Or in the context of bhakti, he can do bhajan. He can do service invisibly, like, what's his name? Gurnishta had the comic. One guy was chanting. What is it? How did it go? And the other guy said something like... Uh, wasn't it something that, don't you think chanting is service also? That was, yeah. What, chanting is not service? So there's a saying, uh, one Buddhist author on, uh, titled the book, Don't Just Do Something, Sit There, which is the opposite of an English saying, don't just sit there, do something, get busy. So there's some place where not just doing something, but sitting there and going within. So to have arrived at such, this is a, 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 a developed stage in the context of bhakti. If one can do bhajan, if one can do lila seva within in the context of, of non-bhajan, this is an attainment. These devotees aren't going to put down their beads for, for something else, just jump up necessarily. Probably would always do that for prasadam, but that's another service. But So the point is what? That bhajan or inner life and its development is not something that you take and it's not something that's arrived at cheaply. It's at great cost and with great effort and concentration determination has been described here as well in the, in the, in the final section that we, we read with which one is to apply oneself in yoga. The examples given this is an an old example, Prabhupada cites it, and Vishwana Chakrabhitakra cites it, Baldivid Bhushan cites it, the example of the of the sparrow who had her eggs stolen by the ocean. Sparrow's a very small bird, and she laid her eggs by the shore of the ocean, and the waves came in and took the eggs away. 
but she was so determined to get her eggs back, her young. You know, the birds of all uh, different animal species, well, I guess the bird species, but less complex species, are particularly empathetic in compar- comparatively in taking care of their young that shows up. So anyway, she wanted her babies back, wanted her eggs back from the ocean. What is a sparrow going to do, you know, against the ocean? But she was determined. So she began to take with her little beak one drop of water and empty it out. And her idea was she was going to empty the whole ocean till she found her eggs. And the ocean was just laughing as it sent his waves in onto the shore at the folly of the determination of the sparrow. But Garuda took note of it. Garuda is like the king of birds, the bird carrier, Vishnu. And seeing the determination of the sparrow, Garuda came and flapped his wings and the ocean went back. Like that, and the eggs came out. So there's help in bhakti. In bhakti, when one applies oneself with determination, there's help on the other side. Here, there's help also, it's mentioned. The yogi comes to know the self by the self. The second self is the paramatma. The paramatma makes makes the self known and makes the self uh, identified in yoga with himself and so on. So a little bit of help there, too. He got the paramatma to move. That's pretty good. <laughs> and so, his point is, anyway, with regard to sitting in a solitary place, that... Um, that with some effort, some concentration, with it, it began with how you moved, as I've said, so that you, so that you could come to sit and then to sit with determination and regularly, and consistently and continue to draw the mind back. When we want to come to the point of actually working with the mind and withdrawing it from the world, from systematically withdrawing it from the sense objects pratyahara, dharana, concentrating it. This requires, this isn't really a uh, an art, so to speak, that you can just um, develop in the gym or something, in the mental gym or something like that, or uh, by reading a book. It's actually a question of purification. The psyche and our physical physical aspect of our being are both constituted of the influence of the modes of nature. Krishnangi asked about these different uh, kind of states of the mind uh, mentioned in the purport, my purport, my comment chapter, to the, I think the text, 10th tenth, tenth, tenth verse of this text. And there's kind of a drowsiness of the mind, and there's a distracted state of the mind, there's a, a concentrated state of the mind, and, uh, if you will, uh, an arrested or fully controlled state of the mind. And these, what, what, what these are about are the influences in our psyche of the modes of nature. So to the extent that our psychic dimension, mind, is influenced by tamaguna, then the mind is going to conduct itself in a way that's not conducive to meditation, and to entering into samadhi or a controlled state and focused state of the mind. Under the influence of passion, the mind is distracted. It can stay steady for a little bit and then it will go here or there. There may be some scope within that 
the small entrance into like stopping the mind and and feeling oneself, experiencing oneself. But when the mind becomes more subtly constituted of of sattva, sattva guna, and how, do, how is this going to happen? So this is something you're going to just learn theoretically and go and do it. It's a purification. It's a subtle uh, process that yoga is about. It's a, it's it's a, it's a, like I say, we can we can you can reason to people about the logic of yoga or bhakti and so forth, but how they can come to participate really is through purification. So we have the confidence if they take prasad, that'll help them. When they can't reason, when their mind is too much influenced with the reasoning by the tamaguna, just give them some prasad and we have confidence that will help. Gradually they come to a point of being able to reason, think, think clearly and so on and so forth. So it's... Uh, and again, it's also it's lifestyle. Yoga is a whole lifestyle, and it's all it's a sattvic kind of lifestyle. So the more that ingress of sattva, sattva guna, the more the mind has the capacity to be fixed, one pointed, and to the extent that it's in sattva, it can be one pointed ekagra, then it can enter into samadhi, some pragyata samadhi, concentrating on the object fully with no other thought. And then you come back from that as the capacity of the mind to stay in that position is limited by material conditioning. So there's a stage of, of, of sitting and practicing this. In bhakti, as I mentioned in the 12th chapter, I alluded to that this morning, I believe, Krishna tells Arjun, this chapter, 12th chapter, is all about bhakti yoga per se, just like this is per se, ostensibly about Ashtanga Yoga. We can talk about it with regard to Bhakti as well, but 12th chapter is particularly all about Bhakti Yoga. And what does Krishna say there? Just fix your mind on me. This is in yogic terminology, asam pragyata samadhi. Step completely outside yourself, mind completely identified with, with me, to the extent that you don't know that your mind is identified with me. Now, that's the Brajlila. <laughs> They're so completely identified with Krishna, but see how the dynamic expression of it in bhakti. They don't know that their mind is completely identified with Krishna. And just like someone might be completely in love with someone but not be able to admit it. And I mean, they do like Krishna, and they do admit that, but still they... They argue with him, and uh, and uh, mother chastises him. His friends critique him, and gopis treat him in uh, not always with friendly uh, embrace. But they're fully absorbed in him. Their minds are completely identified with him. So, at any rate, Krishna says, "You do this. This is rag bhakti." And he says, "But if you can't do this, then." There's a stage below this where you're qualified to practice doing this. In one sense, you could say, "Well, just 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 love me," which means to fix your mind entirely. Entirely, this is prem. But if you can't do prem, then come to bhava bhakti, and then enter into samadhi and come out. See your yourself and your identity in relation to the leela, and come back out. Go back in and come back out. And go back. 
until you can go there and never return. Something like that. So, so here it's been talked about in the context of yoga with ekagra, fixed mind, and the high, high, refined, sattvic quality of mind. This is possible. He enters into his samadhi and comes out, and he's fixed on the object. He's not yet merged with the object. Nirodha or asambrangata samadhi, sampragyata. So, at any rate, the point I'm making is that these, this capacity is is for an advanced devotee, and it, it's it's a lot of energy spent to arrive at that. It's not a cheap thing, and therefore it's not something that's flashed around. It's an attainment that is humbling. After all, even here, we, we've, we've seen now, we've read some verses Krishna has said, he has entered into the picture of yoga, he said. Twice he's mentioned himself in the, in the texts that I've read, indicating that some bhakti has to be within the equation of yoga for it to really to be successful. So, it's a grace, this kind of attainment. And a very valuable thing, so that one who actually has it is, doesn't have really the tendency to want to go and show it all over the place, and uh, that's more of an, of an indication of, of of not attaining. I, I had, when I was younger, some of my earlier experiences in bhakti, um, in sadhana bhakti, um, one in particular, and this connection stands out in my mind when I first went. Uh, before Lord Jagannath in the temple, and uh, it was late in the evening. We used to have an art ticket around about eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. It was the last art ticket, and we had I don't know six or seven art tickets in a day, and it was one of the. It was a real quiet one, and hardly anyone would go. And so I had been out engaged in Sankirtan, and I came back and and went to the late art and uh, and Jagannath began to dance on the altar and spoke to me. And and I was so overwhelmed by that, as um, small as it was, attainment, and that I went and I, and so like, so filled with so much uh, gratitude at Bhagavan's reciprocation that I really couldn't speak to anyone. I had no, the, the farthest thing from mine was going out and advertising it. I went instead, and I slept in the car, in the in 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 parking lot, and I weeped and weeped and weeped in the car. At how fortunate I was! I didn't want to be around anybody. I I, I felt embarrassed that that an insignificant entity like myself had been blessed by the Lord of the Universe, personally uh, addressed me. So the attainment naturally causes one to gravitate towards a solitary place. We find great devotees like uh, in situations like this. They're not out there in the public trying to draw attention to themselves. In a preaching context, it's another thing. They may take a high seat and so forth. But that's also out of some serving ego. They've been, it's become apparent to them that this is what's being asked of them. Sometimes it's said that if you see something that needs to be done, it means you're supposed to do it. So if you can see there's a need here, it's apparent to you. You understand that you must know something about the solution, too, if you can see the problem. So maybe you have to be part of the... You're being called on to be part of the solution, something like that. So a devotee may take a position for, for in that 
context, in the context of serving and doing the needful and so forth. But bhajan and one who has attained the ability to do that or here yoga, samadhi, this is not something, it's, it's done in a solitary place. It's not, it's not a cheap thing. Therefore, Narottam has said with regard to bhakti, if one advertises one's bhajan in a way that's not, that's unbecoming, there may be a place for that. Bhakti Vinod talked about his bhajan mercifully. There may be some place for that, but generally, it's, it's to be, it's to be shared only in more smaller circles, one's inner life. We may broadcast the inner life of another. That's another thing to glorify him or her, but, um, Narottam says that that should be kept, you know, that's a secret of the wealth and shared with you by Bhagavad. It's a love thing. So, you know, he's in love something you can't just, you love somebody and you want to tell everybody and people go, well, keep it yourself, you know. <laughs> you know, you don't go out in the public and, and, um, smooch and whatever, you know, in the, in the public place, it's kind of unbecoming and, and so forth. You may want to tell everybody how much you love somebody and then they say, well, anyway, that's for you. That's <laughs> your thing. Keep that to yourself. Act normally when you're in public. So, so this, <laughs> so this something to this side uh, as well of the idea of a solitary place. And the solitary place is really in the hallowed, sacred confines of the heart. This affair is going on, a union, a sambandha relationship, a union is being made with, with the deity, here the yogi, with the paramatma. There's two types of union. I think we might have just mentioned it briefly. And it's worth doing so again while we're on the topic in yoga. And that's, that's the kaivalyam. Kaivalyam means oneness with the paramatma. That's merging with the paramatma. And then there's a oneness in a kind of a love of shanta, shantarasa with the paramatma. The latter is desirable from the bhaktas perspective and the former is not. It's a kind of, the former, the sayuja, the merging with the paramatma, um, is undesirable. There's no service opportunity there. Shantaras is a much, 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 much higher attainment than paramatma sayuja. Much higher, no comparison. It's bhakti rasa. This is the way Krishna is speaking about yoga, astanga yoga, here in the Gita, in a way that this cannot be misconstrued as it can be in Yoga Sutras more readily, isn't it? A scholar on the Yoga Sutras will attest to that. And and there's a fair amount of that. In the, and probably that's the more popular interpretation of the sutra, which is influenced by the more popular Neo-Dwaitan thought to be monopoly on on Vedanta, which we're trying to make an effort to show us, yeah, it's not what they what they think it is. But that that influence, that kind of rudimentary and static idea of union of oneness, that pales in comparison even to Shanta Bhakti, Shantarasa. What to speak of uh, Dasya, Sakya, Vatsalya, Madhurya? What kind of a dynamic oneness and love? What, are the, what, is, what is the unity between the Brajbasins, the residents of Vrindavan and Krishna? Yeah. 
and, and how attractive and charming it is, even just to hear about, in comparison to this uh, kind of Aishwarya of, of, uh, of Yoga Samadhi and, and, and uh, trance. That, 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 I mean, here the yogi is described as fixing, trying to fix the mind, and, and he does attain that, but in a situation with no distraction. And Radharani is trying to get Krishna off of her mind. This is her yoga. <laughs> She's making a concerted effort to forget about the Krishna. And it comes up with all kinds of good reasons for it. It's with, and cannot do it. What kind of yoga is that? What kind of union is that? What kind of fixed mind is that? To make the comparison is, is, is almost inappropriate. The kaivalya of the, of the yogi. So this is the power then of the union afforded that's forged between the, the jiva and, the, and Bhagawan in bhakti. It's very understandable. It's, it's a compact, a union of, of love. Here is a, is a, is a technique-oriented love, if you will, in comparison. Bhakti is all about love. Yoga is a very sophisticated technique and a little bit of love in there. It works. It makes the whole thing go, so to speak. So, uh, for the devotee, there is samadhi also. Let's see what comes out of it also. Think of it like this. If we do extol the virtues of bhakti, what comes out of the samadhi of the devotee? What comes out of the samadhi of the, uh, of the yogi? Practically nothing comes out of the samadhi of the yogi for us to take advantage of. We just kind of hear about it from a distance, what it is, and, and some vague explanation of, of what it is by what it's not. You sit still rather than move, and uh, its mind is one-pointed and so forth. Maybe a little elaboration in the Yoga Sutras, but not much. But out of the samadhi of Vyas, Vyas is a bhakta, samadhi nanusmarat he was very qualified. He was in his in his yoga, in his bhakti, he was feeling some dissatisfaction. And Narada's guru came and told him why. And told him to sit in samadhi. You're qualified to do that. Some qualifications are there, are given. Basic idea, basic standard of purification in the context of bhakti. Narada said, do your do samadhi, go on. He went into samadhi and a basha, a language came out of that. What came out of Vyasa's samadhi? The richest theological text the world has ever seen, that's Srimad Bhagavatam. I tell you frankly, this is the richest text of religious texts in the whole world, Srimad Bhagavatam. That should be brought out objectively by the religious scholars. And when you compare to the Quran or to the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, um, what else is there? I don't know, Tibetan Book of the Dead or something? <laughs> anyway. The Sikh book. Sikh Guru Granth. Bhagavatam is so rich in comparison, theologically. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's oceanic. It's nigamakopatoro valitam palam sukumabadam turabasam vitam pibata bhagavatam 
Even the, even the Mughals, who weren't Hindus, were captivated by the Bhagavatam and commissioned artisans to draw pictures of Krishna Leela. And you see these in ancient miniature paintings in India. Such a powerful, powerful book. This is what came out and was given to the world from the samadhi of a devotee, Vyas. In other words, he went into samadhi and as described in Bajiva Goswami and Pasutha Goswami in Bhagavatam itself and brought out by Jiva Goswami in his Satsandarva, in Tattva this samadhi of Vyas gave birth then through his pen of the Sumit Bhagavatam. We call it Samadhi Bhasha. It's a language of samadhi. It's the, it's the babbling that came out of his the mouth of a person who was gone, lost, to the world, lost external consciousness, and, and fainted and into the Brajlila, woke up and just talk about it. Some poet poetry came out of his out of his mouth, and Vikanesh is writing it down. A very beautiful, very profound, very rich. Such is the contribution of the Samadhi Basha of Vyas. Srimad Bhagavatam, the crown jewel of all the scriptures, the uh, ripened fruit of the tree of the Vedic literature as it's described. And this is, there's, my point here is there's some objectivity to this. It's not just a sectarian claim. You have to look at them and see the measure to which, I mean, I'll give you a crude example. I was distributing Prabhupada's books. I might have told this story before and a fellow offered the Bhagavatam to a person who was in Denver, Colorado. I can remember the place to this day. And he said to me, I don't need your book. And I said, okay, how come? Why do you say that? You, obviously, you want to tell me you've got a reason. And so he said, because in my religion, we know about the social life of God. And I really appreciated his comment. I thought, yeah, that's a good, that's, in other words, he's saying, we're, we know about the social life of God through our book. How intimate can you get? What are you going to tell me about God? I know through my religion about the social life of God. How's that? I thought that was pretty pretty good reply. Of course, I, <laughs> I had some thoughts about it. Obviously, I'm giving him the Bhagavatam. He was, and I said, well, what, so what, what, well, tell me a little bit about the social life of God. He said, well, I know, we know that God had a son. His son was Jesus, and he sent his son to the world, and so on. He went on with that. And I said, well, you better take this book, because you know, this is about his, his brother, <laughs> too, <laughs> and his lover, and his friends, his father, and his mother. So you want, so if you appreciate that the, the, a theology's depth will be measured by the extent to which it affords us insight into an acquaintance with the social life of God, you better take this book. This takes a, a, a leap Further, such as Srimad Bhagavatam, the social life and the and the social life of God and the and the uh, what would you call it the uh, the secret life of God, <laughs> not just his social life, which is which is visible and acceptable in in the realm of the Leela, but his his secret life after the sun goes down, meeting with the gopis and so on. So that's the standard, as I say, of Srimad Bhagavatam. This is, came out of the Samadhi of, of Vyas. So we have our yogic 
samadhi also. Let's see what the contribution of that is compared to yoga samadhi on paramatma. What's there to talk about? Even in shantaras, and again, the shantaras, very, very high thing compared to paramatma samsauja. It's very, very high thing. It's rasa. And this is this is even talked about by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Rupa Goswami has discussed it in brief because he's analyzing all bhakti rasa, but it doesn't have much to do with the braj, which Mahaprabhu Shri Chaitanya Dev came to, to do to to acquaint us with. Chari bhav, it's made up of four bhavas: dasya, sakya, vatsalya, and madhurya. It means it's all active. There's no inactivity there. It's too exciting. I mean, it's, you can't, but Bhagwan has shown himself in such a way that you can't just sit there and watch. You've got to participate. It's a call to action. Narayan is not as, as exciting. You can't sit and watch and, and feel content. But So, in this way, we've discussed a little bit more about uh, yoga to the point of the uh, description of the culmination of that in uh, in Samadhi. And so tomorrow we'll hear a little bit more about the yogi. And Krishna is going to go now more directly in the the, uh, direction of bhakti, which is inevitable. This is where he's taking the whole thing. Through all these early chapters of, of yoga, different yogas, Karma Yoga, Nishkam Karma Yoga, Gyan Yoga, Karma Sanyas Yoga, Dhyan Yoga now. It's all leading to Bhakti. The chapter will end with that and will take us into the middle of the book where we meet Bhagwan, who is met by Bhakti, not by any other means. So you're going to start to drift in that direction. And Arjun will come in and make a comment here, question about yoga and its efficacy and its, its practicality and so forth and so on. As a devotee, he naturally has a doubt about this mechanical system, and, it's, and he's not particularly attracted to it. He's attracted to bhakti. So, stop there for the night. What's the time? Five. No, five Any questions? Yes. Yes. Um, I would like to know if there are can we know in, in some way if there are coming any more hidden incarnations in Kali Yuga? Or is Sri Krishna Titanya Mahaprabhu the only hidden incarnation? Yeah. We, the Mahaprabhu has taught us that in the Goswamis that the avatar will be known in two ways. One, by his symptoms. And two, by scripture. In other words, described in scripture and correspondingly he has the symptoms. So Chaitanya avatar for the yuga of Kali, for teaching, the method for Kali Yuga. What else? Another question? Yes? Uh, in almost every, every religious text there is a is note that this is the only correct religion, this is the only real faith we can have, and everybody else will be, depending from the religion, yeah, we'll go to hell or be reborn as something that doesn't really reach uh, like 
like a higher level level in rebirth. And it's always been a really, really hard thing for me to accept personally. And I was wondering if you could give me any, any advice considering it. Yeah, I can give you some advice. Um, you, you should, you should uh, seriously uh, continue to pursue Gaudiya Vaishnavism because we don't say that. We don't teach that. We do. We do think that that we're that that our that bhakti is the best, but it it's uh, that's otherwise why would we do it? <laughs> but we don't say that other paths won't lead to some elevation. Here we're talking about yoga, it's leading to paramatma realization, and even shantaras, a very very high thing. It's enlightenment. But we we see practically that there is a gradation within enlightenment, which is hard to talk about because. Enlightenment is perfection, and we're speaking about a gradation within perfection. So there's a very strong tendency for us to enter into that with a material idea of gradation. And it's really not what we're supposed to do. Perfection is perfection, but there may be perfect, more perfect, and most perfect, something like that. But these are just words. <laughs> uh, we, we do kind of... We have a yardstick of objectivity when we speak about degrees of perfection. Um, and the way we invoke that is in terms of intimacy that's afforded. So perfection means to be united with God. United with God means you've retired everything that gets in the way of that. So karma or sin, if you want to talk about it, that's all removed entirely, and uh, the, the karmic debt has been paid back, and one has made his or her connection with God in eternity. It's eternal, never ends, there's no falling from that, it's, it's a enlightenment, one is enlightened. But within the context of that enlightenment, there's um, different degrees of intimacy with the object of love. Not all prefer the same intimacy, and that's why they stop where they do, and it's per that's why it's perfect, subjectively. But if objectively we look at it and see there are different degrees of intimacy, then we can say this particular path affords a greater degree of in intimacy with the object of love, and someone may 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 be charmed by that and may want that, and and so on. But uh, that but but the yogi who attains Shantaras is perfect. The bhakta, who, uh, and he he's some kind of devotee also, obviously, because there's some devotion. We do say this, for any spiritual path to be effective, there has to be some bhakti, some devotion. Without that, it's not possible. It's not a mechanical process. It's a hard exercise by which you become enlightened. So I, th I think we are maybe inclusive in a way, as if you will. Um, and... Um, we analyze different paths in terms of their capacity to efface the material ego, and retire it, and so forth. Not all spiritual paths are doing that, and those who don't, we don't take them seriously. Some of them enhance the ego and foster self-aggrandizement rather than uh, selflessness and uh, self-abnegation and so forth. So those paths that, are, uh, that advocate and, and really deliver through their 
methodology, a, a self-abnegation, taking the self out of the center and so forth. Um, these are have, have real uh, spiritual currency. And then we'll look at that sadhana, that particular practice, in terms of its sadhya, its goal, and see the degree of intimacy with which it affords one. And if someone may want that degree of intimacy and be happy with that, then we encourage them along those lines. So there's a kind of a discrimination that's, that is beautiful rather than ugly. After all, they say discrimination is the better part of valor also. That's the high side of discrimination, or discrimination can be an ugly word at the same time. Does that help? Well, I remember as a kid, I was a, raised as a Catholic, and and I heard one day, I was only about eight or ten years old, that the boy next door was a Protestant. He was my friend, and he wasn't going to go to heaven. I cried. I thought, how can it be? He's not going to go to heaven just because he's a Protestant. <laughs> I couldn't relate. It was my beginning of my existential doubts about Catholicism, I guess. <laughs> so they've changed a little bit, I hear. I don't know about the Lutherans, but... But Luther caused them to change to some extent, too. That was a good thing. <laughs> so what else? Another question? Um, something totally different. You know, I recently met a devotee who was um, strictly following Chaturmasya, and it seems a bit unpractical, I have to say, here, when the in terms of maybe like ecological thinking that the season, the only season when we have fresh produce, we wouldn't be allowed to eat it. So, but still the, I know that in Godiamat they followed it. And so, would you tell us something about the background? Well, a lot of these things, the Chaturmasya is a four-month kind of a, Chaturmas means Chatur for Mas month. It speaks about literally about the four months of the rainy season in India, and how people would conduct themselves during those four months. So it has an environmental, you know, foundation to it, if you will, and um, in a very practical kind of reality that's that it's tied to, and and then it has a. Metaphysical kind of significance and and so forth. I mean, the, ex, the external world has a background and consciousness and so forth. And so anyway, the Chaturmasya is the four months of the rainy season, and it's, uh, and the devoted uh, people would conduct themselves differently in those months than otherwise. Um, the, the, the the traveling mendicants, for example, would stay in one place because it was raining. It's harder to travel, so they stay in one place. If they're going to stay in one place rather than move, which requires more energy moving, then then they, then they would fast more readily. And so there's a lot of different fasting, different foods in the uh, Chaturmasya observed by the sadhus, who the, the, the sadhakas, the spiritual practitioners, and so forth, whose focus is controlling the mind and the senses and and so on. So if you're going to sit in one place, then uh, it's not good to eat as much as if you walk, you know, so many miles a day. I mean, they're walking maybe 10 miles in a day. 
20 miles in a day or something, and 30 miles a day? I think 20 would be. 20 miles in a day, about 3 miles an hour. Then, uh, you know, you're going to be hungry. You can eat more, you can digest it, and so so anyway, there would be different fasting, and so and and then they, you know, they, they say, yeah, certain during the certain months there was a fasting for particular foods, and it was all relative to what was growing at different times, and so on and so forth in a particular location in the subcontinent of India. So a lot of these ritualistic practices they had a very pragmatic side to their observance that gets lost in different times and different circumstances. And then the observance seems to be very like disconnected and odd and and uh, be impractical rather than practical. Like you say, well, during the Chattamasya, you fast from green leafy vegetables on one, during one month and, and, and in that month, maybe in Finland, that's the only thing that grows. You know, so whereas in India the situation is different, so it starts to look very odd and it's very disconnected from the pragmatic, from the human standpoint side of it. That's not the only side of it, hmm? but that's an important side of it. So then people dismiss, start dismissing these religious rituals altogether. They seem to get make people do all kinds of weird things that don't make any sense. And, and so, but in the context of of where they actually ap- appeared and uh, in India and so forth, they made a lot of sense, also. So the Chatumasya is, um, I think, that the observance of the month of Kartik, which is the almost also happens to be the last of the four months of the Chatumasya, is mentioned as a limb of Bhakti. It's considered to be the month of Radharani, and devotees are to observe some remembrance of, of Radha, and this is a, a limb of bhakti. Now, with regard to bhakti, Rupa Goswami is given like 64 angas, or 64 limbs of bhakti, in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. I think Jiva Goswami is given like 80-some in his Bhakti Sandarbha. But more famous are the ones given by Rupa Goswami. It's not that all of them have to be practiced. You can practice one of them and become perfect, just by hearing, which is a primary limb of bhakti. So, there's some option there. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur strictly observed the Chaturmasya at a certain point in his life, at another point he didn't. One of the reasons for his making it, the observance, so central, I believe, was to, sh- was to demonstrate some standard of austerity and so forth, so that people would not as readily dismiss the devotees seeing that they, they had capacity to be very renounced and so forth, which is an Aishvarya, which makes people's, gets, gets people's attention and so forth. So he, because he was engaged in preaching, disseminating the message of Mahaprabhu, he wanted to draw some attention to the mission. So therefore, some people in some missions may cling on to that and so forth, and, and, and they come to the West and they do it and they get their followers to... Follow, but there's no, not always a lot of thinking behind that, what that's about and why and the relativity of it and so forth. And we see the relativity of it and how Prabhupada observed it or how Sri Maharaj observed it comparatively. And they were students, direct students of Bhakti Siddhanta Sostitaku, who observed, served so strictly that for four months he would only eat, he would have his hands tied behind his back and he would bend down like this and eat off the floor 
only the uh, habishan means rice and dal cooked with no salt or spice, as much as he could eat while down like that in one sitting and get up. And once he came up, he wouldn't eat anymore. It's a pretty extreme kind of austerity. They were his disciples, and they weren't doing that, I can tell you that. Because I'm a disciple of them. <laughs> they, weren't, they didn't observe that. They didn't teach us to follow that. And so, so there's some... Um, it's optional to an extent. We don't, there's no need to criticize those that are following, but I have seen, as I say, that sometimes the sense of what it's about is lost and the, and the connection with its practical underpinnings in the place that, the, in India, for example, where yeah, such ideas manifest. Now it's, now it's, as bhakti becomes more widespread and universal than the universal application is what one has to gravitate towards. That's why Bhakti Thakur in interfacing as he did Gaudi Vaishnavism for the first time with modernity, he took a more universal stance and we find that attractive, right? Rather than a provincial stance. You know, in Jagannath Puri they won't offer Jagannath anything that wasn't growing on in India at the time that Krishna was present. You know that Krishna only ate local organic food, locally grown organic food. So we should only eat that. It's new regulative principles and uh, new ethics. So, but anyway, Sridhar said about Jagannath Puri, kind of a physical conception. They only offer him food that was growing in India at the time, if anything's important. He's Jagannath, he's the Lord of the universe, but they're only offering what, what Krishna ate, what was available for Krishna to eat, as they understood it in the subcontinent of India during the time he was present. Well, it's kind of charming in a way, but then it's, you can see it's rather provincial. He's a Jagannath, he's the Lord of the universe, and there's good things, good tastes in other parts of his world. <laughs> As well, and as these devotees come from out from all those other parts of the world, they're going to bring those things. And what should you offer to Krishna? Those things you like the most, because that will be the, you'll be able to, because they're dear to you. Then you think, I'll give it to Krishna. Then that's more devotion is involved there. So whatever you like the most, you should offer within some parameters, of course. <laughs> If you like pizza, then you better offer that. Because you'll, you'll think, such a valuable thing, I made such a nice pizza, I'm offering Krishna. After all, it's the love that he's accepting, right? The more the offering is saturated with love, the more he's likely to, to taste it. So, anything else? Okay, we'll stop there. Sriman Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai. Sri Guru Vaishnav Guru Paramparaki Jai. Go back to Vidnaki Jai. Go with Pramananda.